insurance is unspoiled by innovation. There's not many sectors that measures in trillions of dollars and have been unchanged in 100 years. And it's unloved. And that combination of unchanged, unloved, and endlessly big as an entrepreneur is all you need kind of to say, okay, let's do something here. Welcome to Noah Kagan Presents. What up, party people? It's your boy, Popsicle, aka Rabbi Can't Lose, aka Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talk with someone who's completely changing a hundred year old industry, the exciting industry of insurance. Yes, his name is Daniel Schreiber. This is part of the Israel series. He is the CEO and co founder of Lemonade.com. It's one of these startups you're going to be hearing about, you're going to be using in no time, and they are reinventing the insurance industry completely. Plus, you get to hear everything he says in a gorgeous British accent. These guys are no joke and secured one of the largest investments ever, Dr. Evil style, from Sequoia Capital. In today's episode, you'll learn three key things. First, how the heck did Daniel go from being a lawyer, you know, like the British style with those cool wigs, to becoming a tech co-founder? So if you're trapped in entrepreneur land, you'll want to hear his advice. Second, why Daniel doesn't subscribe to the minimum viable product philosophy? And third, how Daniel created a disruptive business in a very crowded and boring market. We'll talk about that and a lot more. Enjoy. Before we get started, I want to hear one thing you're doing this week for your business. Tweet me at Noah Kagan, N-O-A-H-K-A-G-A-N, and let me know. Enjoy the show. All right, well, let's start at the beginning and then we'll see how that, because that's actually probably pretty interesting. Got my law degree, got married, moved to Israel. For my third time. And since moving to Israel with my wife, we've twice moved to California just because I've been working high tech for the last 20 years and there's a strong nexus between Tel Aviv and San Francisco. Did you get to wear the wig ever? I never got to wear the wig. I would have been a lawyer just for the wig. (laughs) (laughs) When you started law, what made you want to move to Israel and do law here? It wasn't so much wanting to do law here. In fact, we just wanted to make a home in Israel. I never entirely felt at home in England. And I felt at home in a deeper way here than I did there. What was it about here? Well, it's a Jewish thing. Yeah, it's interesting to think that there's a state or country in the world that's built for a certain group of people. And then you wonder like, oh, yeah, that's why there's like Chinatowns in different areas and Israel's the state for Jewish people to come and hang out. And it is something nice where it's kind of a big family. As much as there's arguing and a lot of negotiating. and Like every family. (laughs) Like every family. But at the end of the day... There's love, this connection and deep understanding of like, hey, we're probably on the same team for the most part. Yeah. My cousin, who is a lawyer as well in Israel, and I don't know if this is true, but he said that for every 150 people here, there's a lawyer. Sounds about right. I don't know if it's really true, but it sounds about right. It's a bunch of Jews, right? (laughs) (laughs) How did you take the step to say, all right, I'm done being a lawyer. I'm going to cross to the other side. I was a beneficiary of coming of age at the right time. There was kind of in the air this notion that old-timers don't get it, and only the youngsters can think about the internet in an effective way. So venture capital money was thrown at inexperienced young people, most of whom squandered it. But it was a great schooling for me. So even at the time, it did feel a bit risky, but not that risky. I still had my law degree. If I had to go back, I could go back. I started a software security company, which I started in 97. We sold in late 2002, and it was in the business of securing images. We sold the company in late 2002 to a company that no longer exists now. I took a few months off and then I joined a company called M-Systems. It's not a well-known company, but they invented the USB flash drive. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that was very cool. And I ran business development and marketing there. So you wanted to get on the other side of the table to start. You finally got it. People are like, I want a bunch of money. 
or I want that job, or I want this car. And then you get it. And then sometimes it's better, sometimes worse, sometimes what you expected. How was it actually being on that other side of the table for those five years? It was a thrill. It was fabulous. It was everything I wanted it to be. It was sleepless nights, and it was a lot of tension, a huge burden that weighed heavily on me at the same time. It's a roller coaster ride. That's what I signed up for, and I enjoyed the thrills and the terrors and the whole ride. For the beginning, what surprised you about business that you didn't see being a lawyer? I have a lawyer, and all I do is send them money. I'm not really sure what they do. <laughs> they just get bills every month. I can't argue with them because then they charge me for arguing. But I do wonder if they're like, oh, it'd probably be easy to do what these guys do. I guess what anything surprised you or what surprised you? I felt that the burden had kind of weighed on me a little bit, and I wanted to do something a little bit more, less burdensome in that sense. I didn't go and found another company straight away. I, I took this gig at M Systems and had a, a fabulous time there. The company invented the USB flash drive, didn't sell under their own brand name. But if you bought one from a bunch of other companies, from Kingston to Memorex to IBM, chances are you were buying one of our USB flash drives. Uh, it went from nothing to $600 million in a very short period of time. It was a real rocket ship of a ride, a partnership that I fostered with a company called SanDisk, who are the large memory makers out of California. That relationship culminated in them buying M-Systems for $1.6 billion. They didn't know many people at M-Systems. I was one of the only people they knew. And they straight away said, oh, come to California. This was my third time. I'd gone for my startup. So we moved again to California. And I ran SanDisk's MP3 business unit, which was an absolute thrill. It was unbelievably exciting. You have to go back 10 years to before the iPhone, when the iPod was like the hottest thing around. SanDisk brought out their own MP3 player. And I had the opportunity to lead that business unit. There were three business units in SanDisk. One of them was the MP3 business unit. And it was while the hottest device in the world was the MP3 player. That was the thing. That time, first of all, living in California was a blast. We'd done it before, but still had the best time. SanDisk is a fabulous company. And I was really cool. My kids thought I was cool and my wife thought I was cool. We got to go to the Grammys. SanDisk became the largest MP3 player in the world after Apple. If you took all the other players combined, Samsung and Sony and Microsoft, everybody else combined was smaller than the business that we were running there. So it became a sizable thing. And anybody who wanted to chip away at Apple kind of came to us to support us. So I had all these big music labels and musicians coming through and all this kind of stuff. And I know nothing about nothing. It was so wasted on me, but my wife really appreciated it. <laughs> but I had a blast. Got to meet Steve Jobs, which was a pleasure. And I stayed at SanDisk until 2010, I think it was, thereabouts. Why do you think Apple beat SanDisk? It wasn't even close. Maybe a better question. Why did SanDisk lose so badly? Why didn't they figure out how to catch up or do something innovative? Like, What was it like internally and, and the feelings around Apple? I don't think SanDisk lost at all. I think SanDisk did fabulously well. It became a very large and very profitable business. But it wasn't even close to Apple. It was better than everybody else. But Apple's in a class all of their own. The combination of things that they could bring to bear, their ability in software and branding in hardware, in distribution, was unparalleled. Just their market forces that they could bring to bear. If we sold to Best Buy, Best Buy would take 30, 35 margin points from us. When Apple sold that, they sold them at 10 points of margin because they just said, if you don't want the iPod, you don't have to take it. And everyone was lining up to take it. They created this force field around their products that was unparalleled. And the way that they combined all of their different assets to create a system in terms of the music relationships iTunes, the software, the laptop, the devices, their stores in due course, the distribution beforehand was just humbling. It was really phenomenal. Really, really phenomenal. I never thought about the logistical operation of all those different things. Like most companies, including Sumo and Lemonade, are trying to get one thing right. 
not only did they get that right, but the hardware and the distribution and all these other things, it's very impressive. They're a system that was impenetrable. They had a moat around a moat. We didn't try to out-apple Apple. We developed devices that were much more low-end, uh, much more affordable, alternative distribution. We didn't go head-to-head with Apple because we couldn't. Microsoft tried. I don't know if you remember, they brought out the Zune, and they just imploded on that. They just wasted, squandered staggering amounts of money trying to go head-to-head with Apple and failed abysmally because they were trying similar devices, similar price points. We didn't do that. We developed lower cost price points. We appealed to a different consumer at a different price point, and we were able to carve out a niche which was unappealing to Apple. It does tie back to Lemonade a bit. Today, we're competing with traditional insurance companies. When we were first raising money, one of the venture capitalists says to me, aren't you scared to go up against these big insurance brands? When I was competing against Apple, that was terrifying because that is perhaps the most formidable competitor in the world with the deepest understanding of consumers with the most powerful brand loyalty ever. Insurance doesn't have that kind of dynamic. It's very different. And when you're up against Apple, the trick is not to presume to be able to play at their game, not to even try it. You're not going to do design better than Steve Jobs, and you're not going to do software better than them, and you're not going to do manufacturing better than them. But there are things that they're not good at. They're not good at low end. They're not good at sub hundred dollar devices. They're not good at highly portable. Like for sports, they weren't great because they had big bulky devices that could do a ton of things. But if you wanted something minuscule with which you could go for a run, they didn't cater to that well. So the large segments of the population that they weren't performing, they were, I don't want to say snobby, but they were clearly high end and they were premium priced devices. So that left room for others to carve out other niches. You are wearing a black turtleneck and jeans. <laughs> is that your Neither jeans nor tough, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did get a chance to meet him as well. And it's amazing you meet these people with how special that is. I worked at Intel and he was in the parking lot and I ran outside because I thought I saw him at the parking lot. And I knew he drove an SL500. And I don't know if you know this, one of the most interesting things, he never got a license plate. I know you parked in the handicapped spots and all these that, kind of things. Yeah. I mean, I think that one was a little more brash, but in California, you don't have to get a license plate for the first six months of a car. He would just get a new car every six months so no one would ever be able to track his license plate. And so he had a Mercedes, no license plate outside, talking to someone. And I ran outside. My boss's boss's boss was standing on the sidewalk. And I was like, that's Steve Jobs, huh? He's like, yeah. I was like, do you mind if I go talk to him? (laughs) He's like, by all means. So I just went up and started talking to Steve. And I said, hi, nice to meet you. Thanks for building Apple. I grew up in the same area. So I was like, oh, cool. You went to this high school. I went to your rival. All right, have a good day. That's cool. Yeah, it is very interesting how meeting someone like that is very special. We had one other interaction with him, which, which was memorable for me. Dr. Ali Harari was the founder CEO of SanDisk, my boss. And he quickly, Daniel, quickly, come over, come over. Steve Jobs is on the phone. So we'd announce uh, one of our MP3 players. And it was a product that was really an embarrassing product. I did a terrible job with this product. I wanted to kill it before its launch. I wasn't embarrassed. I thought it was just not a good product. Probably as a mistake, we decided to go ahead with the launch. So we issued the press release and there's a photo of this product that I thought looked as ugly as sin. And for some reason, Steve Jobs decided that this looked like an iPod. I wish it looked like an iPod. (laughs) <laughs> I wish it looked like an iPod. And he does what he did, which is to call the switchboard and ask to speak to the CEO. He literally just called up the switchboard and asked to speak to Ellie. And Ellie quickly kind of beckons me over quickly, quickly. It's Steve Jobs on the phone. And Steve is saying to him, you know, I think this new device that you're launching looks a bit too similar to the iPod. Ellie says to me, you know, I, I don't think so. I think, you know, we'll send you a copy. You'll see it. It doesn't really look, maybe the photo isn't that clear. <laughs> you know, like, Steve Jobs says to him, well, maybe we should let the courts decide. And I said to Ellie, yes. You know, I said, so long as they spell the name right, let them sue us. That would be fabulous. Because <laughs> we were this little ant, nothing compared to Apple. And if they felt in any way threatened by us, I thought that would be a huge win. Yeah. Anyway. How did it end up doing? It was a bomb. 
what's that like in a big company when you have an idea for, because it doesn't just happen overnight. It's like committee meetings and organization. Like how did that go? I had a reasonable amount of freedom there and more of our MP3s were hit than misses. So the batting ratio was fine, but there wasn't an expectation that everything will be a hit. And Ellie is a remarkable man and was a phenomenal boss and encouraged innovation and risk taking. How did he do that? Because I think that's one of the things I always hear people say. Like one thing I've noticed about companies is we empower people and they're autonomous. Then I see how it's really run. I'm like, no, they're not. You kind of tell them what to do and you micromanage them. He didn't. You know, he ran the company, he founded it, and he ran it for 25 years. Right up until his last day on the job, he was shaking the tree and reinventing things and starting from scratch and questioning basic assumptions. And he was a rebel. He really encouraged me to fight the machine. What made you finally decide to leave that? When he left. So he retired at the height of the business success. He did phenomenally well. He was the founding spirit and continued to perform very well. It was really thanks to the founder still being there and still having those energies and encouraging me and allowing me to be a startup within a large company. And when that era ended, it was time for me to move on. What's between that and, and where you got to with Lemonade? Met up with Shai, who was at Fiverr, and we left our respective gigs, joined forces and formed Lemonade. The end. <laughs> <laughs> Walk me through that. Did he come to you and say, hey, I've seen you've done all this cool stuff? We were both beginning to think about what we wanted to do next and working through different ideas. Hadn't met each other yet. I was going through what in retrospect sounds like a structured kind of analysis, but at the time was kind of a meandering just through different areas, trying to think how could technology disrupt or reinvent or innovate in a sector in a meaningful way. And insurance wasn't high on the list, but when I encountered it, I kind of stopped in my tracks and felt that we'd hit something because insurance is so huge, so unspoiled by innovation. The last hundred years have seen almost no innovation in this sector. And there are not many sectors that measures in trillions of dollars and have been unchanged in a hundred years. And it's unloved. And that combination of unchanged, unloved, and endlessly big as an entrepreneur is all you need kind of to say, okay, let's do something here. What were other ideas you were evaluating? I spent quite a long time seriously working on AI for diagnostics. I'm still convinced that in 15 years' time, medicine will look so different that we look back on medicine today the way we do on the 17th century. I think that doctors don't stand a chance compared to what AI will be able to bring to the whole world of diagnostics. So the combination of just medical information doubling every 18 months as it does genetic sequencing happening at price points that today it's a thousand dollars but within five years it'll cost the same as a cup of coffee so suddenly instead of getting 30 blood markers you'll get three hundred thousand or whatever many more than humans can process and you combine that with the third exponential movement which is towards sensors phones wearables and you combine those three exponentials and you just realize that humans won't be able to contend with that torrent of data and it's really going to shift and it's not simply that machines will be cheaper it's just that it's no longer a job for human beings i spent a few months looking into that pretty seriously why did you pursue insurance instead of that? Competitive dynamics. I just felt that too many other people had figured that out. And while I don't think anybody had to come up with a good enough solution, and I still think there's a lot of opportunity, companies like IBM, like Google, like Apple were onto it and doing stuff in there and therefore standing out would be that much harder. I don't know if I've ever heard anyone say, I love my insurance company. No, it's really unloved. It's one of the least loved sectors, which we always found kind of intellectually intriguing. It's a social good. It's helping you out in a time of need. Why is it perceived as such a negative, a necessary evil? And that made us ask some pretty basic questions about insurance. And really, for Shai and myself, what we start off doing is we locked ourselves in a room and we spent two months with a whiteboard saying, hey, neither of us know a thing about insurance. So what we should do is go ahead and school ourselves in insurance. But we didn't do that. We decided to milk our ignorance for all it was worth 
and ask ourselves basic questions like, how would you build an insurance company today, knowing what we do about the sharing economy and technology and consumers and knowing nothing whatsoever about insurance? I think I failed high school uh, probability theory. This remains our thesis, is that insurance is unloved because it's conflicted and that it's got a deeply flawed business model. When you make a claim for me, your insurance company, every dollar that I can avoid paying you is a dollar more of profit to me. And that means that at a very, very fundamental level, you and I are in a profound conflict of interest. And we don't believe that you can generate a lovable brand or a lovable business or a trusted business atop that kind of conflict of interest. So we try to think, is there a way to create insurance that's different, that doesn't have that conflict of interest at its core? Can we use technology and what we know about the sharing economy and modern business models to reconceptualize insurance in a radically different way? We sell homeowners insurance, renters insurance, condos insurance. The top 10 companies in the US in this field have an average age of 104 years. If you took somebody from a century ago and you stuck them in a time machine from a board meeting of State Farm 100 years ago to a board meeting of State Farm now, I think they'd fit right in. <laughs> it's probably the same people. <laughs> Cryogenically frozen. My, my first thought is how come no one else has noticed that in 100 years this trillion dollar industry has not been touched? For one, it's daunting. They use their own jargon. They don't have a normal PNL like other companies. You need to be Warren Buffett to understand what the hell's going on there. It's heavily regulated, which is also very scary. We raised a seed round of $13 million. It was the largest seed round in the history of Sequoia, and they've been at this for a while. The barriers to entry are not for the faint of heart. In retrospect, it's been fabulous. We ran the gauntlet and we came out the other side and we got licensed and we're live and things are going phenomenally well. But I'm not sure that it was a smart thing to do. We flipped the coin and it came up heads, but had we flipped it 10 times, I'm not sure it would have come up heads 10 times. <laughs> we took a few bet the company moves. They worked out well and we're thrilled. And in retrospect, it's fabulous. But I understand now why people are daunted by this. They're right to be daunted. This is not for the faint of heart. How do you align the company to the customer so you are on the same side as me? And then too, what were some of the bet the company moves? Well, the way we align is we say, we're going to take a 20% flat fee which in the tech sector doesn't sound like an unusual thing to do. It's how eBay works. But in insurance, it's very uncommercial. The way insurance works is I take your money. It's my money. And I make a claim. I fight with you. And if I give it to you, I give it to you. And if I don't, I pocket it. That's their business model. No 20% fee. Our model is no. You give us $1,000, 200 of them are ours. That's our flat fee. We use the rest of the money to pay your claims, your collective claims. If there's money left over, we're going to give it to charity. Insurance is one of these sectors that brings out the devil in us. Fraud is a major problem for every company in the world. The problem with insurance, fraud is huge, but it's not the hacker from Moscow, it's you and me. We're the people who are defrauding the insurance companies. 25% of Americans, when surveyed, say that it's okay to embellish claims for insurance companies. You've got this really odd situation where people who regard themselves as law-abiding citizens behave well in life until it comes to insurance, and then suddenly they, they're <laughs> criminals, and then they carry on behaving well. <laughs> yeah. So what we say is, look, when you onboard with Lemonade, first of all, we're going to make it very simple. It's a 90-second process to buy insurance. You do it with your app, you do it on the web, lemonade.com, download the Lemonade app, boom, 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 you're done. And by the way, that minute, you're going to enjoy yourself. It's gamified, it's a chat, it's interactive. So first of all, collapsing the timing, but then getting to a process where at the end of that, you select a charitable organization that you want to give back to, want to alleviate poverty in my neighborhood or support my local church or what have you. June 30th is our give back day. We look at all the people who selected that particular charity and we look at how many claims did they make. And if they didn't make many, if there was money left over, we donated on their behalf to that charity. Now, when you come to make a claim, we remind you of that. And suddenly the whole psychology changes because it's not you against me. 
say, no, oh, your TV was stolen, whatever, your phone was stolen. Please claim whatever you deserve, but please remember that unclaimed money is going to fund your local church. Now, it's not you against the machine. It's you against a cause that you care about. And suddenly, you can be much more thoughtful and responsible about making a claim. So we haven't got a conflict of interest because we're never going to keep that money. We've put it out of our reach, not because we're more moral than the next guy, but because our business model has been structured in such a way that that money is beyond our reach, so we can't reach in and take it. So we'll bring our better selves to the table. And you, our claimant, the customer, is going to bring your better self because you're not up against that machine. And suddenly, instead of it being a vicious cycle, it becomes a virtuous cycle. In fact, just in the last few weeks, three of our customers returned money to us. They'd claimed, got paid. And they said, oh, the laptop was found. Here's the money back. And, you know, these guys have been doing insurance for 20 years. They've never heard of such a thing, a customer returning money. It's it's really unheard of. And the one other thing to add to that is that once you don't have that conflict of interest, then the technology can really find expression. So we pay claims in three seconds. Not always, but about a quarter of a third to our claims are today instantaneously paid. It doesn't say your claim was analyzed. It doesn't say your claim was approved. It says your claim was paid. The money is in your account. So suddenly you can deliver orders of magnitude changes of user experience of time to get money, you're collapsing costs while you're doing it, and you're delighting consumers by the by. That sounds like you're setting yourselves up to get screwed, that last part. And just the fact that you guys pay out so quickly. How do you guys just not raise all this money, you give it all out to everyone, and then you have nothing left over to run a business? So how do you guys ensure that, ensure, pun intended, that you guys do stick around and not just, you know, because the charity aspect, people still just don't care and then take all your guys' money and run. You know, we're seeing claims behavior that doesn't speak to that. There's something, um, you might think of it as naive, but human beings live up to your lowest expectation. If you treat people as criminals, they'll behave like criminals. And human beings will sometimes behave very well. You know, in, in uh, rural Africa and rural India, there's been a lot of microfinancing going on. The repayment rate that Grameen Bank has had there is 99 point something percent. Now, they've got no enforceable contracts, no collateral, no FICO scores on which to base it, and 99% repayment rates. And take the same human beings with the same DNA into the US, anything between 10 and 38% of the money in the insurance space gets squandered on fraud. So you have to ask yourself the question, why do human beings sometimes behave well and sometimes behave poorly? And that's really been what we're trying to address. I don't think for a second that we'll get fraud down to nothing. It's not going to be a binary outcome that everybody else gets screwed and we don't at all. But if we can reduce the incentives to defraud, if we can bring out our best and bring out the best in you, there's no reason to assume that we're going to get screwed. We found that we're able to program AI to do a lot of the stuff that a human being would do. And we don't pay all of the claims. The other 75% of the claims at the moment are still being processed by human because the algorithm isn't sure that it's a legitimate claim. We're able to first reduce the incentive to defraud, which is a very powerful thing. And secondly, we're able to implement a lot of the anti-fraud things that are done offline. We're able to do them online in billionth of a second instead of over a three-month period. As you guys were getting this company started, what were the big bets you made that you said you bet the company on? We were under tremendous pressure from everybody who knew anything about insurance to say, never become a carrier yourself. What you want to do is become what's known as an MGA. An MGA basically means that you go to a traditional insurance company, you take their paper as it's known, their basic policy, they're the regulated entity, they're the ones with the capital, and you go create a pretty website or pretty app and sell their insurance. And everyone said, look, you guys don't know anything about insurance. The last thing you want to do is is create an insurance company. So that was one move where I'm very glad that we did resist that and we became an insurance carrier because I just don't believe that you can sprinkle technology pixie dust style on top of a hundred-year-old edifice and think it's going to be transformative. And if you buy into our thesis that the foundations are the problem, then just adding another layer of a pretty website, it's kind of like putting lipstick on a pig. You know, It's not going to really affect 
deep change. It's not going to be disruptive. Ultimately, consumers can see through that kind of stuff. Another one was going to the state of New York. We went to the very toughest regulatory environment and sought a license from New York. And that was a bet the company move. They could have declined us the license. <laughs> but having received it, it's allowed us to move much faster through other states because states have respect for New York and are, are much more likely to grandfather you in if you're domiciled in New York. But we do buy into the thesis that you create real value by doing hard things and that taking the easy route doesn't get you there. The dominant way of thinking in Silicon Valley today is don't create the whole thing, create the simple, easiest, minimally viable product, test it out, see that it's working and correct as you go. That's not the approach that we took. You have to do the hard work up front. You have to bet the company because you can't test this. You can't beta test it. You have to get a license before you can even start selling insurance. So it was a very different development cycle to what a lot of software companies are able to do. The only thing I would encourage for the listeners and the way I, I like to look at it is you could also go to people and still say, hey, how do you feel about your insurance company? If we had this alternative, here's how much it would cost and here's your charges and we donate to charities, would you sign up for it today? And either get their money or you could validate it a little bit before you go and commit the years and months to getting it set up. I mean, yes, and we did that. You know, We went into Starbucks and we showed people drawings and we did some of that. But surveys are notoriously unreliable. And consumers, even if they think they're answering truthfully, they don't really know. You'll get obvious feedback, right? If you ask consumers, hey, would you like insurance that's easy and faster? They're going to say yes. Who's going to say no? The level of answers that you get back at that point are kind of self-evident and you can answer them yourselves. The harder question of does this whole thing come together does it play like an orchestra or does it miss? Is going to be hard to extrapolate from survey data ahead of time. What gave you the confidence then to move forward with it? We had a pretty strong conviction that it was right. And we spoke to smart people who we trusted and we found investors who were willing to gamble on the vision. But we had some sleepless nights over this. We didn't really know. We would not have been at all surprised had we launched and needed to iterate many times and scramble to fix things. It was a huge and very pleasant surprise. What did most people not realize that you have to do to get approved as a regulator or as an insurance company? What did most like, consumers not realize? I hadn't realized how much they're going to scrutinize the resumes of uh, the people in the company. If a company has a history, they'll look at the company's history. But if it's a new company, they'll look at the history of the people rather than of the company. So getting on board world-class talent, senior people out of senior insurance companies was really important. And recruiting people out of big insurance companies to disrupt the business that they grew up in is a non-trivial thing. I literally wrote in the job description, midlife crisis as a requirement. Because <laughs> if you're happy in the corner office at AIG, we're not for you and you're not for us. So bringing on board those kinds of people was crucially important. And it's people who know the industry, are respected within it, but don't believe in its future. The one thing I was wondering about that earlier is that you hired these people from the corporate environments. How did you find ones that could not just say, well, in insurance, it's going to be like this. Because one concept I think about when starting companies is, do you start something you know well? Like I know internet startup marketing. So let me just only do businesses related to that versus insurance. So I guess, how did you guys break free from that or find the right people around that? It was a real concern, which has turned out to be just fine, but it was not self-evident at the time. We were worried because we both shy and myself we're techies. The people whom we managed to hire were looking for that. There were people who saw the change coming, who had decided that the way things have been done for the last 100 years is not the way they're going to be in the next 100 years and wanted to be on the right side of history, so to speak. And they were hard to find. It was a long process, interviewing a bunch of people, finding the right kind of people. They were all better compensated at their big companies and they had to leave behind sometimes thousands of employees in the private jet to come and sit in their jeans in the open space. It's something you have to want to do. But if you want to do it, 
then this is the place to do it. There aren't that many options for those kind of people who looking around them in the big corporate headquarters and thinking something's got to change. From inception to launch day in New York, how long was that? 13 months. And then what was launch day like? We went live September 21st and we were all sitting around one long table. I think the company had less than 20 employees at the time or thereabouts. And we issued our press release and we turned on our servers and people came. And we had these bets the night before. We were all kind of having drinks and we had a dinner, you know, how many policies are we going to sell? And we ended up selling a bunch more than anybody bet on. On our first 24 hours, we sold, I think it was 99 policies if memory serves. It was awesome that we sold any. Like who buys from a minute old insurance company? Every policy that came in, everyone was sitting around the table and clapped hands and you know the buzzers went off. It was a phenomenal day. Absolutely phenomenal. The company launched Lemonade.com for property insurance, 100 people, and then it kept growing. And I think it's over 15,000 policies or something like that number. It sounds like it cannot fail. What are you worried about? It's much less clear right now. Now, there's some obvious things, right? How are the incumbents going to respond? We're up against companies that are huge, very wealthy, spend staggering amounts of money on advertising, can outspend us on any category, can outhire us. And then there's a bunch of other startups that are undoubtedly going to come and try and replicate what we're doing. Why property instead of car to start? I'll tell you, there's two or three things about cars that make them less interesting to us. One is that it's an area that has been relative to other areas of insurance has received a lot of attention. So you think about all the commercials they see, Geico, Progressive, it's all about car insurance. And there's a lot of direct-to-consumer, both Geico and Progressive will sell direct-to-consumer, whereas homeowners insurance, renters insurance, it's all broker-based. It's the old-fashioned part of the industry, the part that's been most neglected. The second thing is that our consumers, we tend to skew young and urban, and car ownership is much lower there. So these are people who are more likely to want to insure an expensive bike than an expensive car. Car ownership is declining. You think about places like San Francisco, people are switching to Uber today, and over the course of the next decade, to autonomous vehicles. And it's a sector that is going to see huge contraction. So for all of those reasons, it didn't seem like the most sexy end of the spectrum. And then for yourself now, you've been in the game. You finally got out of the, the lordship and into the startup world 20 years ago. Uh, I've read in an article, they said, oh, if you're over 40, good luck starting another company. I was like, shit, I only got five more years left to keep running Sumo. And then I'm out. And there's data to suggest that people peak in their 40s. And then after that, it's much harder. I think the 40s, is plenty of companies are started by people in their 40s. The data does confirm that kind of thing. I think you're still okay for a so while. So like 10 years. But I think it also works the other way around. Throwing yourself back in the game is what keeps you young and in touch. And we're in such a fast-moving industry. The way software is done today and the way software was done just a few years ago is, is transformed. If you're not constantly starting new companies, I think you find yourself stuck in old ways and it's moving to your next thing, man. Come on. <laughs> Come join Lemonade. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's a wrap. I hoped you like hearing Daniel's lessons and his calming British voice as much as I did. As we close out the podcast, you know what to do. First, go check out Lemonade.com and then send Daniel a tweet saying, yo, what up, Daniel? It's Dash Schreiber on Twitter if you can find it. Second, I want you to go tell someone you love them. If you haven't talked to them in a while, just said, yo, let's have a barbecue or hey, I'm just thinking about you. Number three, have an excellent day. What's your favorite boy band?